This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome into another edition of the Pipeline Podcast. Tim McMaster here along with MLB Pipeline's Jonathan Mayo and Jim Callis. The 2018 draft is over. Jonathan and Jim have had a good night's rest after roughly 18 hours of draft coverage. Hopefully they've gotten some new electrolytes into their system as well. This pod is going to be all about the draft. We'll tell you who won, who's going to make it to the majors first, and a whole lot more. And we're excited to be joined by Jared Kelnick, the Mets' first-round pick, number six overall out of Waukesha, Wisconsin. Jared, thanks for joining us. Uh, Congratulations um, on being a first-round pick. My first question for you is um, take us back to the moment on Monday night. Who were you with and and what went through your mind when when you got the call? Uh, yeah, um, it was uh, it was definitely an experience of a lifetime. Uh, you get when you get your hear when you get to hear your name called, um, you get you get to realize all the hard work has paid off. Um, it's there's no better feeling in the world to hear your name called. Um, I got to spend it with my family, my friends. Um, we got to watch it on a nice big projector, but. You know, just to see the commissioner come out and say my name, you know, it's something I'll never forget. Uh, well, Jared, first, uh, let me apologize that you had to look at either me or, or Jim Callis on a on a big projector screen. That's that's rough. Uh, no, you guys you guys look really good. Oh well, thank you, thank you very much. Um, I was not fishing for that compliment. Uh, sure, you were. Compliments <laughs> to the makeup people in uh, at the yeah, the seriously. Um, you know, your name was sort of mentioned kind of all over the map, uh, you know, as Jim and I were sort of working on our mock drafts, at what point did you get a sense that, you know, you, you were going to land in the top 10 and when did you know for sure it was the Mets that was, that were going to take you? Um, you know, I had an idea, uh, a couple picks prior, um, the Mets were definitely interested like a week before the draft. Um, I had met with a lot of their scouts, a lot of their front office people, and even, some of their other coaches um but you know it really was set in stone with you know a couple picks before that the Mets were really considering picking me with their first pick and you know I couldn't be happier the way it turned out hey Jared Jim Callis here how much pride did you take in in becoming the first player from the state of Wisconsin to go in the the top 10 overall picks in the draft I, I live not too far away from you on the north side of Chicago and Obviously, the weather is a huge handicap here. I know your father has, has built a facility to kind of help you pursue your dream, but how much pride did you take in being that first Wisconsinite to go in the top ten picks? Yeah, you know, I mean, for me, it's it's a blessing um, just because well, he's me, but I look at it as, like, how much it's going to do for the younger kids coming through. Um, that to ha- They have somebody like, me like Gavin who went 20th two years ago um you know it gives those kids something to strive for and that they know that even though they're from here and they're blessed with terrible weather in the off season that 
we have the facilities to do it and that there's been kids that have done it. And as long as they, you know, work hard and, you know, put their mind to it, that they can do the same thing. Uh, Jared, you know, you, you look at the Mets. I'm wondering if you, you know, this has crossed your mind at all. Uh, you know, several years ago, they took Brandon Nimmo, uh, who you know, didn't even have a high, high school team. Uh, so there's a development path that he followed that you obviously actually probably played more baseball than he did at the same time. But seeing a guy like that in the big leagues, does that give you like a comfort level before you've even put on a, a Mets jersey to, to know that, uh, you know, that they've worked with young high school outfielders who come from areas that don't get to play a lot of baseball, whether it's weather or lack of program? Absolutely. Um, you know, Brandon actually uh, reached out to me. Um, so, I mean, that was pretty surreal to have him, you know, say, you know, you ever need anything, any questions, I'm here for you. Um, but, you know, I think New York is going to be a great fit. I really do. Um, to see somebody that, you know, came from, you know, kind of a colder weather place, I'd say, but didn't play high school baseball, I think. And um, it, it does give me that comfort to know that they have the – such great player development that are going to turn me into the professional in the New York Mets that they want me to be. Jared, you know, when we talk to scouts, I think the thing we hear the most, that they rave about the most, is your hitting ability. And you know, We rated you the best high school hitter in the draft, one of the best hitters available in the draft. From a, a tool standpoint, a game standpoint, what do you think you need to work on the most? Um... Personally, I would say the mental side. I mean, that's that's only going to get better with experience. Um, I think um, tool-wise, uh, you know, I think every every part of my game can use a little bit more critiquing. And just I think the the more and more I play and the more experience that I get, I think it's only going to better them. Um, if I had to solidify just one, um, you know, I think sometimes a, a lot of people – don't they don't believe in my my fielding ability just because I haven't played center field all throughout my high school career even though I have the confidence to go out there and play it every single day and know that I can do it um but I think because I haven't played it my whole high school career that that's going to need some work too and so if I had to solidify I would say that my fielding could get better Uh, Jared you know a lot of people love you know you know Jim and I always uh Get a, get a little rankled about this because they, they want comps for, for players, uh, especially for amateurs, uh, so they can compare it to some big leaguer. Well, we don't like to do it. Uh, Jim Jim said you're a more athletic Mark Kotze. Now, I don't I don't even know if you know who Mark Kotze is. I do. But you do Come on, he knows who Mark Kotze is. He's a, he he's a student of the game. He played in Milwaukee in the, like, towards the end of his career. All right. Uh, so, uh, do you tell Jim how much you hate that comp? No, I'm just kidding. But uh, who, you know, is there anybody that you know? Not that you think, oh, I'm exactly like this guy now, but someone you watch play and think that your your game is, is similar or that you like to watch that you can learn from. Uh, yeah. I mean, I definitely I love the way Mike Trout plays the game. Uh, I truly do. Um, I think that like you and like a lot of other guys, I really don't like to throw comps out there or like really think about it too much because like I would I would hate for somebody to come back and think that I'm exactly or I think I'm going to have a career that this guy had and that's not the case but 
I, I would say definitely Mike Trout. I love the way he goes about his business, off the field especially, um, and just how hard he plays every single day, day in and day out. That's the biggest thing is you play this game 162 you know, games, and you're expected to come out to, and play as hard as you can every single day. That's why you're getting – that's why you're a professional athlete. Jared, you know, you were on Team USA for a couple of years. You were on the Showcase Circuit as well. You know, this was a draft that had a lot of, of really quality high school pitching in it. I was curious, who was the best high school pitcher in this draft that you faced or, or played with uh, from what you've seen the last couple of years? Um, You know, I'd have to say in just in a, a single at bat, it was probably JT Ginn. Um, he was, I mean, it was 96, 97 that was tailing away. Uh, your, your really only option was, you know, going the other way unless he made a mistake in. Um, but then I think throughout the game, uh, like seeing a pitcher in multiple at bats, I'd have to say uh, the the hardest, the tough, one of the toughest pitchers that I had to face was uh, Slade Ciccone. Um Guy that you know he used his he he was in repetition all the time and he, his mechanics were almost the same and identical as the pitch before whether it was a changeup breaking ball um it, it was hard to hit off of him throughout the game. Jared, Jim mentioned uh, sort of in passing the the facility uh, that your dad was able to to build to to help you deal with the the elements uh, in Wisconsin. So I guess my question is twofold. One, if you talk a little bit about having that kind of home support to to help you reach this dream and two as the father of a high school player living in Pittsburgh can your dad come and build one for my kid here absolutely I'm sure if you gave him the opportunity he'd love to do that um (laughs) I think you can move to Wisconsin too John yeah (laughs) uh definitely the facilities have helped you know not only my career but other kids whether it's baseball football and basketball, you name it, um, it's helped me tremendously. You know, whether it was – I mean, I remember distinctly a time where it was the first – it was the first week of February, and my close friend Jordan Groshans is out there playing, and it's 70-some degrees down in Texas, and it's negative 10 here and snowing. And I was like, you know, I still have this great facility, and it's an all-turf infield. And I got in there, and I still got my work in. And it's it's negative ten out. So, like I I don't look at it as, um, you know, yeah, the weather sucks here and stuff like that. But I with my dad building these facilities, not just me, but there's so many kids around here that have this opportunity. And personally, I think that just speaks to my dad's character. He didn't just build these facilities for me. He built them for all the kids around this community because he wants to give every kid the best opportunity possible. Excellent stuff. Thank you so much, Jared, for joining us. Congratulations on on being the first-round pick of the Mets, and good luck here from here on out the rest of this summer. Hey, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. All right, great stuff there from Jared Kelnick. And it is a a fascinating story, uh, Jonathan, with the facility out there in Wisconsin. And I think he put it really well that this wasn't just to help him, but there's going to be a lot of young baseball players in that area that are going to be able to really capitalize from that facility. Yeah, it's amazing. I think that he's, you know, he already has a, a lasting legacy, and he he's not played an inning of pro ball. And I know his his father has you know much to do with that. But uh, you know, even if that he was the initial inspiration for it, the fact that now there's going to be a lot of kids in that climate who are going to get the chance to work on their skills when 
in the past they'd be sitting, you know, maybe working out in a high school gym or, uh, you know, or not working out at all uh, is huge. It's a great story. And you can see the effects it's had. I mean, that's not the only reason, but, you know, he alluded to Gavin Lux, who was a first-round pick a couple of years ago in that same draft, to Ben Rortvid, a high school catcher from Wisconsin, went in the second round to the Twins. And this year they didn't get drafted high enough to sign, but Jacob Campbell and Alex Benellis are two more really interesting Wisconsin high school kids. Campbell's a catcher who's headed to Illinois probably. Benellis is a third baseman who, who was recruited to Louisville like, like Kelnick was. And I have a feeling in three years we're going to see Jacob Campbell and Alex Benellis will probably be top two or three round picks at least. Very talented kids. There's there's a ton of talent in Wisconsin, and, and now it's getting an even, an even better chance to develop. Very good. All right, let's move on to the rest of the draft. And we got to start at the top, I guess, and that was the Detroit Tigers, and they took Casey Mize, which was an absolute no surprise to anyone. He was expected to be number one all along, uh, number one on everybody's kind of draft lists, and he goes one. Um, the Tigers didn't have extra picks or anything like that, Jim, but when you start things off with a piece like that, it's certainly going to help the rebuild in Detroit. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, I mean, we had the guy ranked number one. I would have picked him number one as well. Not that, you know, the Tigers need my permission to take Casey Mize, but yeah, you know, they did what, what when we, you know, David Chad, we, I wrote a story earlier in the spring, you know, said he was, they were going to do, you, you, you take the best guy and look, you know, I don't think we knew when we filed our, our final mock drafts about 90 minutes before the draft began, 100% for sure that they were going to take Casey Mize at that point because a lot of it comes down to negotiating and trying to get some parameters in place. You know how much money you have to spend on the rest of the draft. But, you know, you just don't find guys like this with that kind of stuff and that kind of polish very often. I mean, I've said this. It's funny. You're not just, you know, comparing Jared Kelnick to Mark Kotze with more athleticism. You feel like some of these things you've said a thousand times. And when we get to who's getting quickest to the big leagues, I feel like I've – talked about that player six or seven times but you know Casey Mize I've said this a million times I mean and I'm not the only one that split change he has is the most unhittable pitch in this draft he's also got a, a plus fastball 92-97 with running life he's got a plus slider that he can make a plus cutter or make it more of a curveball and he's got unbelievable command of all these pitches. He gets swings and misses in the, in the zone. He can he commands a splitter better than than just about anybody I've ever seen. Um, and when you add all that to, up together, uh, to me it was you know he was he as dominant in terms of, of being the guy who's going one one as much as like a Strasburg or a Bryce Harper. No, but I, I thought he was kind of the obvious number one guy to take this year. I, I agree with that. I think. You know, we, we've talked so much about Casey Mize uh, over the weeks, and, and Jim broke him down. So well, you mentioned, uh, Tim, you know, that they didn't have any extra picks. But because they have the number one pick, they do have a, f- a fairly nice sized draft pool. And they had some interesting picks the rest of the way. Um, you know, I thought Parker Meadows, that they got in the second round, was a guy that I thought uh, had a chance to sneak into, into the late, you know, middle to late first round. That's Austin's brother. A lot of tools there. Um, Kingston Liniac is a, a high school outfielder uh, they got in the fourth round who will probably be a, an overpicked value guy. Uh, so they went for some upside there. And then sandwiched between the two of them was Cody Clemens, Rogers kid, uh, who was the big 12 player of the year. And, uh, you know, uh, has had a really, really good year at, at Texas and 
So, like, I, I thought they did a really nice job, even, you know, even though they didn't have a ton of picks. Uh, knowing that they had the bonus pool that they had, I think they were able to uh, kind of go outside in uh, their comfort zone. And you don't think of the Tigers necessarily as drafting Tulsi High School outfielders, but uh, they did that a couple times and got some college arms, some guys who throw hard, which does fit their MO, um, you know, along, along the way. The top five picks in the draft were college guys, which was maybe a little surprise, although we expected it to be somewhat college-heavy towards the top. One guy that I don't think anybody really expected to be in the top ten until really close to leading up to the draft, Jim, I know you kind of spoke about it right before the draft started on the air, was Kyler Murray, who is set to be the quarterback at Oklahoma this fall, replacing Heisman Trophy winner Baker Mayfield, and Murray is has I guess come to a, a bit of an agreement if you're going to go in the top 10 the team and the player have an agreement he's going to get to play football and then the A's hope he's going to play baseball after that right no exactly and uh, you know it's uh, well first I got to congratulate Jonathan he uh, he had what we're calling the 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 walk-off mock-off by <laughs> by beating me by one pick in the mock draft with getting Ethan Hankins with the final pick of the first round. And, and Jonathan can attest, we were sitting in the same office doing our final mocks, and I told him, oh, I had something with the A's, and I just couldn't quite bring myself to pull the trigger because I, I couldn't confirm it. I had it from one source, and it was going to bother me if it was right because it was really cool. And it was Kyler Murray going nine, and I should have listened to the one source who told me that, and I, I will going forward. But, uh, no, I, I think what's interesting about it is, and I think we talked about Kyler Murray on a podcast before the draft, you know, look, this is a guy who who was an easy, easy first-round pick three years ago out of high school, but he took himself out of the draft because he wanted to play quarterback. And he started his career at A&M, started a little bit as a freshman, left there to go to Oklahoma. He had to sit out with transfer rules, and, and then he sat behind Baker Mayfield this year, although he did get on the field a little bit. And, you know, on the baseball side of things, you know, didn't play at A&M, barely played last year, and just looked overmatched when he did. You know, the rust was very evident. And then he played this year, and the progress he made, despite losing nearly two years of at-bats, made everybody fall in love with him all over again. I mean, he looked tremendous. You, you sat there and you dream, you know, what if this guy was a full-time baseball player because it's game-changing speed. He, he's got some power to him. He improved dramatically at the plate. And you're just like, wow, this guy could really be a star. This looks like the future star we saw three years ago in high school. But the, the question was, Look, this guy's waited three years to play college. You know, he, he took himself out of the draft to play quarterback in college. He, he's one of the most legendary Texas high school quarterbacks of all time. And now that he's got a chance to play, and not just play, but be in a, an offense that, that turned Baker Mayfield into a Heisman Trophy winner and is as prolific and fun as just about any offense in college football, nobody felt like there was any way he was going to turn that down. And, and so, like, you know, it was, you know, you can always sign him to a two-sport deal, but if he plays two years of football – you know, when do you really get him turned loose on baseball? But, but you know, credit to, to, to Kyler and, and his, his guys helping him out uh, and the A's. But, you know, it kind of became known, I think, a couple days before the draft that Kyler was willing to agree. To, you know, he wasn't going to give up this, this fall. He wants to play at least one season college football. But after that, if the price was right, he'll go forward and be baseball only. So you said starting in January – you know, you get Kyler Murray full-time, which is a lot more attractive than not getting him next spring, you know, if he's still at Oklahoma, even if you signed him to a two-sport deal and really not getting him for two summers. I mean, this gives him a chance to develop on the baseball field, too. And I think it's it's great for Kyler Murray, it's great for the A's, and it's great for baseball to get an athlete like this. But, yeah, that was that was kind of uh, exciting news to see him go number nine overall and 
and, and as you alluded to, Tim, I mean, look, I mean, the vast majority of these guys, whether they're quarterbacks or not, aren't going to get picked in the first 10 rounds unless the team knows exactly what it's going to take to sign them. It's not everybody, but it's the vast majority of these guys. And I think by seeing him go number nine, there's no way the A's do that without getting assurances that they're going to get him full-time, you know, a lot sooner than people expected. So I'm excited to see what he does once he's a full-time baseball player. Now, assurances are great, um, but what happens if he goes out and he wins a Heisman Trophy this fall? Is it in Will it be in a contract, Jonathan, that, hey, it doesn't matter, like you have to play baseball? You can't do that, right? I mean, in the end of the day, he could still go into the NFL draft, and there could be a decision there. I mean, at this point, it seems like he's set that he wants to play baseball, but things can change, right? There is some risk there for the A's. Uh, yeah, although I mean th- that's why you have a, a contract. I'm, sh- you know, without knowing the, the details of what the agreement will say, I'm sure there will be some assurances uh, and some insurance if something like that would, ha- would happen. Uh, everything that I have heard uh, is that you know, and if you look at him, he does not look like an NFL quarterback. Um, so even if he wins the Heisman Trophy, I think it's the kind of thing where uh, you know, like a Charlie Ward kind of deal. Uh, where you're, you realize, sorry, he's he's not going to be an NFL quarterback. Um, so I don't think that they would have taken him, nor would he have agreed to whatever terms they've they've agreed to, uh, without the without having a very firm grasp of exactly how this is going to work. Yeah, and what's interesting is his dad went through this. His father, Kevin Murray was a a big-time two-sport prospect coming out of high school as well. And this was in the early 80s, and he signed with the Brewers. He got a very significant bonus at the time. I think it was equivalent to end-of-the-first-round money. Um, And he went out and he played a season of pro ball, and then he he struggled. And I think, uh, depending on who you talk to, he had some nice inducements to – to honor his commitment to A&M. So he, he played one summer pro ball after getting close to first-round money in the 1982 draft and then just jilted them uh, to go to, to, go to um, Texas A&M. And the Brewers actually sued him over it and lost because there was nothing in the standard contract that prevented him from doing that. What you, what you can do is there are two provisions for two-sport athletes where you can spread the bonus over five years. And I'm almost certain that that's what will happen Tim, to ask your question to kind of protect the A's here. Now, the whole bonus, even if you spread it, counts against this year's bonus pool. But my guess is he will get something, let's say if he signs for around $5 million, that he'll get you know, 500000 or a million or whatever up front, but he's not going to get the rest of the bonus if he, you know, for whatever reason, decides he's, he's going to play more football after the fall. That makes a lot of sense. Okay, so he moved up into the top ten. A couple of guys that we thought could go in the top five actually fell out of the top ten, and that was the other big surprise, I think, on night one, and that was Matthew Libertor, who was ranked number four uh, in the top 200. He goes to the Rays at 16, and then Brady Singer, who was ranked number two, uh, he falls all the way to number 18 and goes to the Royals. And those two teams, though, are no surprise because those are the two biggest bonus pools along with the Tigers in this draft, both teams with so many picks on day one. Jonathan, I'll let you start on this one because I know how much you like Libertor and maybe you would have taken him at number one if you, if you were given the possibility. Um, how surprising was it that they fell that far? And then maybe you can spin that into how good the Rays did starting with Libertor. 
Yeah, um, it, both of those guys falling uh, were surprising. I, I would say Libertor uh, was even more so, just and uh, maybe just because both Jim and I kind of caught wind of Brady Singer not going quite as high as we thought uh, when we were scrambling to do that last mock draft that we did. And, um, you know, I, I didn't know where to, to put him, and I kind of stashed him at nine. Um uh, Singer at nine, but Liber, uh, Libertor, I had no idea that uh, that he was going to drop. I, you know, I thought he was in play in a number of places in the top ten, and I, I, I really didn't think he was going to go uh, further than than ten here in Pittsburgh. And so that one took me by surprise. And uh, you know, signability, you know, I I guess played a, a part in it. I don't think that they had thrown out some huge number, but I also don't think that they were saying that they would you know, cut a large deal. Uh, and, and as they started to slide, uh, as he started to slide, you, you had to look at the teams with multiple picks because uh, of their expanded bonus pools. Uh, now, I don't know what he's going to end up signing for. We'll, we'll find out soon enough, I, I'm sure. Uh, but because Tampa had five picks on day one, they had such a large pool, they, they could, you know, afford to pay him uh, above the, the pick value at 16 um, and not completely destroy their plans for the draft. And I think it set them up really, really well uh, to, to have a, a, a very strong draft. And, uh, you know, yes, you know, Jim has said this over the last couple of days, when you have a lot of picks automatically, you're going to think that it's going to be one of the better drafts. The, the Rays, as we, as we had sort of alluded to several times, had had a whole ton of early picks before and didn't turn out so well, but uh, I think you look at the top of their draft and, and getting Libertor at 16 and then getting Shane McClanahan at 31, who, yes, scuffled a little bit with his command, but is still a lefty who throws 100 miles an hour, uh, and then Nick Schnell, who, whose name was popping up in, in first-round conversations, a good all-around tool set for a high school outfielder from Indiana, to get him at 38, uh, I'm sorry, at uh, 32, I was looking at his top 200 ranking. Um, those are all really good gets. Uh, so their top three, I think they, you know, they were fortunate that a, a guy like Libertor and then even a guy like McClanahan dropped to them, uh, and and they were smart enough to to not let them pass by and then still be able to make some some interesting picks further on in the draft. Hey Jonathan, if we're if we're guessing, and, and I'll say we're we're just flat out guessing here, but with Libertor. I'm wondering if, if if they just put out a number around five million dollars or so, which is you know, I mean, he he should have gotten picked in a slot that was worth five million or more, and when that didn't happen, they just didn't back off their number, and the and the Rays had the money. But I mean, if you had to guess, I mean, I feel like I would guess that he gets somewhere around five million in a three point six million dollars slot. Does it does that yes. make sense to you? Yeah, I think probably somewhere around there, maybe maybe a, a touch less. Um, but yeah, he's he's obviously not going to. I would fall over if he signs for for pick value there. Um, but I don't think it's going to be too far uh, above pick value. Uh, you know, he they, they were not holding anyone hostage. You know, or, or putting out some huge number. So I think that sounds right because if you look at the the pick values for the top ten, you know, had he gone tenth, pick value there is four and a half million. So my guess is it probably starts right around there, and so somewhere maybe between the four and a half and five million sounds right. Anyway, we knew the college guys were going to probably go one, two, three, four, five, 
and you know the Mets at six and the Potters at seven. There was a lot of talk that they might want to take a little bit of a discount off their slot. So I wonder if he just kind of got caught up on that and held firm. But but I'm with you, Jonathan. <laughs> I love that guy too, and, and I probably would have taken him. I don't know fourth or fifth in this draft just based purely on talent. So the Rays, it was a big, important draft for them with all those picks. Same deal with the Royals, and it's funny, the Rays end up with Libertor and the Royals end up with the other guy who fell, and that is Brady Singer. And, Jim, from there, for, you can talk about Singer, um, but they went pitching, pitching, pitching on night one, right? Five pitchers, uh, a mix, actually not a mix, all college guys in that first day. Yeah, no, they did, and, and you know, Singer was, I think, kind of his, his – you know, Jonathan and I started to hear that he might slide a little bit <clears throat> You know, right again, as we were frantically trying to complete our, our final names only mock at 5.30 p.m. Eastern time on Monday. Um, and as with Libertor, you know, if you're going to fall and you're not going to back off, you know, whatever your number was, and there's another guy who, on talent, we had him ranked as the number two guy on the MLB Pipeline prospect list, should have gone in a, in a five, six, seven million dollar slot. You know, if, you're, if, if teams were listening to us, which they, they don't always do, even though we provide our rankings for free. Um, <laughs> You know, again, if he's going to fall, then the Rays or the Royals are going to be in the best position to pay him. And I, and I think what happened to him, whether it's fair or not, what you know, going back to high school, he was a second-round pick of the Blue Jays, and he came to terms with the Blue Jays. And you know, you don't do pre-draft physicals back then. There was no pre-draft MRI program, and he failed the physical. And there was a dispute that the, the, the team was concerned about something it saw. And his side actually got some second and third opinions that said, look, there's nothing to worry about here. But, you know, the team's doctor gets the final say. And, and to be fair to Singer, to be very fair to Singer, the Blue Jays probably led the league and failed physicals uh, around that time. You know, Phil Bickford, their first-round pick, failed a physical. They, they, they had at least six or seven pitchers they drafted in the first three, four, five rounds over a two- or three-year period fail physical. They were very aggressive about failing guys with physicals. And lo and behold, a lot of those guys you know, signed uh, discounted bonuses. Yeah, and I don't know that there was anything untoward going on, but it was definitely an issue, and, and people in baseball talked about it. Well, now there is a pre-draft MRI program, and if you're one of the top pitchers in the draft, as determined by MLB, you know, you're supposed to submit to an MRI with a doctor approved by MLB in the union and submit those results in a timely fashion. And if you don't, then the team that drafts you can offer you literally nothing if something comes up with your post-draft physical and still get a compensation pick. And, you know, Singer, you know, it was his decision, declined to do the pre-draft MRI, and I think that spooked some teams. And I think that's part of the reason he fell. And, and I say all that, the guy's been healthy for three years at Florida. He's gotten better every year. He's already been part of, of one national championship team, and, and he's a leader on another team, uh, another Gators team this year that, that could repeat as a national champion. And, you know, assuming he's healthy and, you know, there's no MRI, but if you look at him on the field, there's no reason to think that he's not healthy. Uh, that could just be an absolute, absolute steal for the Royals. And they just continued to pound college pitching. They took his teammate Jackson Coar at the end of the first round. He was a guy who fell. Then they came back and got a couple of the better college lefties in the draft, and Daniel Lynch out of Virginia and Chris Bubik. They ended the first day with Jonathan Bolin, a big, and I mean 260-pound big right-hander from Memphis, uh, who's pretty interesting, and, and even came back, wasn't there to their first picks, but, but on day two, you know, Austin Cox from Mercer, Zach Hockey from Kentucky, Tyler Gray from Arkansas, Central Arkansas, those guys all have quality arms. So they, I mean, look, if you look at the Royals, 
everybody needs pitching, but the Royals at the big league level, the Royals at the minor league level are really thin in pitching and something they look to address here. So the Rays and the Royals, I think it's fair to say, right, guys? Um, you both went into both of their um, drafts, but those are kind of the winners. But at this point, with that many picks, it's hard to not come out the day after the draft as winners. Yeah, yeah. It's, I, I wind up doing that story every year because I, I love doing that story, but I always feel almost guilty because every year, you know, unless you are doing something, I guess, crazy in our eyes and, and going way against our uh, our board, you know, if you have three first-round picks, you should look pretty good. And, and, and lo and behold, this will shock you, Tim, but I, I, ranked, <laughs> I ranked the Rays as having the best draft and the Royals as having the second-best draft in all of baseball. And, and, and those teams always look attractive because, you know, before these guys sign and go out and play, the teams with the extra picks always look good right at the conclusion of the draft. Yep, and always with baseball, time will tell. And it was a big draft, for obviously, for both of those teams who are entering into big rebuilds at this point as they try to turn things around. Uh, all right, so some guys always get to the big leagues pretty quick. Not necessarily the year they were drafted, although that's been known to happen, um, but, but maybe early the next year. So if you guys each want to pick a guy you think is going to be quick to the major leagues, um, and I know generally this ends up being a, a reliever situation, usually a college reliever, and it helps that, that the team that drafts you is in contention down the stretch and could use you. I know that's kind of what works and factors into this, but, Jim, who do you think could be the first guy to make it up to the bigs? Yeah, and, and I, I think I've got this, this, this feel uh, rehearsed now because I, I, I keep saying the same things about the same guy, and he touches on all the points you just mentioned. Uh, Durbin Feltman at TCU um, is a reliever. Um, he – you know, had a crazy numbers this year, 0.74 ERA, 143 opponent average, 43 to 6 strikeout to walk ratio in 24 and a third innings. Uh, you know, he's got the stuff to back it up, 95 to 99 with, with running life on his fastball, a uh, power slider. You know, lo and behold, he gets drafted by the Red Sox, who are, are definitely, you know, it's hard to imagine the Red Sox not being in the postseason. He's got a fresh arm. You know, you know, we talked about Casey Mize earlier, and we just touched on Brady Singer, who are probably the two most advanced college starters. But they're both going to pitch well over 100 innings. They're both still in the NCAA Super Regionals at this point. They're not going to pitch much this summer. Durbin Feldman, oddly enough, TCU, uh, which has been a four-straight College World Series and came in the season highly ranked, didn't even make the playoffs this year. So, I mean, he only pitched, like I said, 24 in the third innings. It's a fresh arm, and I think if he comes in a pro ball and, and throws strikes with, with the kind of stuff he's shown on the college side, that it's very, you know, at the very least you'd have to give strong consideration for the Red Sox to call him up as an extra arm in September. And then maybe, you know, he kind of follows, you know, former uh, uh, TCU star Brandon Finnegan, you know who who not only you know went from the big league but went from the first round of the draft to the World Series in 2014. You know it's not inconceivable that Durbin Feldman could do the same thing. Jonathan, how about you? Is there another guy that could move quick in your mind? Yeah, my my, my de facto number two, and after uh, after Jim talks about Feldman is Riley Gilliam, who's the closer at Clemson, uh, co-closed at Team USA. You know. He was drafted by the Mets in the fifth round. So not everything fits. You know, uh, if the Mets turn things around and climb back in, then I, I think it's a lot of the same uh, uh, kind of things that Jim just laid out uh, with the Red Sox uh, because, you know, Gilliam is the, the kind of guy who is just undersized. He's a reliever only, but does have three pitches, uh, fastball, breaking ball, or plus out of the bullpen. Uh, he should move quickly. 
uh, you know, right now, seeing the Mets as contenders is a bit of a stretch. So if they turn things around and climb, you know, you know climb back into into the race, uh, and there's there is time for, to do that, then I could see uh, there there being a, a, a similar path. Uh, although the Mets do have a good amount of relief arms at the upper levels of the system. Uh, another thing that could sort of work against him. If they're not contending, there's no need to, to rush him up to the big leagues just because. You know, it would only be if there was that need. But he is that kind of college reliever profile, uh, you know, that it tends to be that, that guy who gets to the big leagues quickly. All right, let's wrap up this podcast by looking ahead to 2019 with the way, way, way too early draft preview um, and I won't make you guys put together a full first-round mock, but I want one guy from each Why of not? you. Why <laughs> not? Come on. We can do that. Let's go. Well, it's not like we're tired or anything. <laughs> one, mo- one guy, one player from each of you, can be college or high school, uh, that you think at this point, looking at the talent out there, could very well be the number one guy in 2019. Jonathan, go ahead first. I will go the, the high school route uh, with Bobby Witt Jr., uh, who is, yes, the son of the former big league pitcher. Uh, he is a shortstop. And a really, really good one. Um, he he would be atop the the board, and uh, you know, a surefire bet to go one one if the draft were held today, which would really not be good for anybody. Um, but uh, you know, th- this is a guy who you know, when I talked to scouts about him, said that if he were in this class, you know, that just had the draft, he would be at or near the top. Um, played for the 18 and under team as an underclassman last year. Uh, he and Bryce Terang kind of toggled back and forth between short and second, but Witt is going to play short stop for a very long time. Uh, he, he gets, you know, 60s uh, across the board from from some who have, have scouted him. Uh, obviously, he'll be seen a lot more uh, over the course of the, this summer on the showcase circuit. He played last summer. He was at Tournament of Stars on, and on the on the national team. Uh, but you know, scouts are so honed in on the guys that they have to worry about for the, the next draft class that it's not like they were turning in tons of reports. So they will be watching him carefully, uh, and it's going to be really excited. He is at Colleyville Heritage High School in Texas. I'm excited to see Witt Jr. play uh, at Tournament of Stars this year, coming up in a couple of weeks down there in Cary. Uh, Jim, who do you like in 2019? I, I like Witt as well, but I will balance out that with a uh, a, a college pick. Uh, you know, Oregon State had the guy who went number four overall in this year's draft, and Nick Madrigal to the White Sox. And Adley Rutschman, their, their, their catcher, could go even higher next year. You know, he's... Last I checked, he was hitting 380 with six homers going into Super Regional play. He, he's a switch hitter, uh, really controls the strike zone well, uh, which it seems like all the guys at Oregon State pretty much do. Um, you know, he's got some developing power. Uh, I think it will be more power when he starts to pull more pitches. And that's not even the best part of his game. I mean, the guy's got a, a cannon arm. It's probably a 70 arm. Uh, he could be, uh, you, could, you could put a six on the receiving and framing skills. This guy's an advanced defender to, to go with that promising bat. And just kind of comparing him to Joey Bart, who went number two this year in this year's draft, uh, number two overall as a catcher out of Georgia Tech to the Giants, you know, Bart has more power. But Richmond is a better defender, so I think you know, especially when you factor in the, uh, the 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 supply of catchers is never as much as the demand for catchers. I, I agree with Jonathan. Like Witt would be my favorite to go number one overall right now as well. 
but Rutschman may uh, may give him a run for it. And especially when you look at how the teams at the top of this year's draft, uh, you know, seem to want college players over high school players, maybe that puts him over the top next spring. And the cycle begins again, as you guys have done a fantastic job this week pulling together the 2018 draft. It was three days of coverage on MLB Network and MLB.com. Now you can hibernate for at least a few hours before you have to start updating those top 30 lists and top 100. But anyway, uh, <laughs> uh, you guys never really get to rest. But great job. Thanks to Jim and Jonathan. Also, Jared Kelnick, a great guest on the podcast. That'll do it for this edition of the Pipeline Podcast. Tune in again next time. Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based championship team.